Malachi can be found on page 801. If you're using the Bible, under the chair in front of you. We are people who make plans. Uh, we have plans for life. We have plans for work. We have plans for school. We have plans for family. Uh, we have plans for this summer. We have plans for this week. We probably, uh, I do, uh, you might have plans for this afternoon. We think ahead. We plan, and wisely so, for considerable, foreseeable events in life. The thing that we've been considering so far this morning is the reality that there is coming a day when the most considerable, foreseeable event of all eternity will take place. And it's this. Whether you believe it or not, there's coming a day when you will meet your maker. So let me ask, what's your plan? How do you plan to approach the Lord on that day? Or rather, how do you plan to respond to the Lord when he approaches you on that day? That day is, in fact, coming. Like all the other Old Testament prophets, Malachi makes this clear. I'll just go ahead and show it to you from the jump. Chapter 3, verse 5, you can look there. The Lord says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Further down, chapter 4, verse 1, for the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The teaching of the Bible is that a day is coming when God himself will return to earth to rid the world of every sin and every evil that has ever existed. It's the day of judgment. What's your plan for that day? How do you, as one who is indefensibly guilty of sin against God, how do you plan to answer Almighty God on that day when he asks you on what basis you shouldn't be held accountable for your sin? I would submit that everyone will respond in only one of two ways. You will see the Lord and you will say, Lord, I, and you'll point to yourself for some kind of exoneration based on what you've done. Or you will say, Lord, he, that is, you'll, you'll point to Christ for exoneration based on his works. I would propose that the book of Malachi exists to prepare you for the day of judgment by putting a stake through the heart of that first way of relating to God. And in its place, it points us to a new, better way to prepare for the day of judgment. 
So here's what I mean. So at the beginning and at the end of the Bible, there is a promise and there is a fulfillment. The promise is seen all over. Maybe you think of Genesis 15, and it's something like this. The Lord, the one true God, will have for himself a holy people from all nations who will dwell with him forever. That's what's going to happen. And the fulfillment of this promise is envisioned at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. God and his holy people are dwelling together forever. The question is, well, how does he get them? And this is actually a question for all of us. It's a question for you this morning. How will you become a part of God's people? And what's happening is that in the Old Testament, there's a bit of an extended experiment or demonstration going on. And that demonstration is the Old Covenant. This is the covenant that's given to God's people Israel at Sinai. We covered this in the book of Exodus. You remember that? So a covenant is an agreed-upon way that two parties are going to relate to each other. And in the Old Covenant, what we might call the little L law, the Lord basically says this. He says, all right, here's what we're going to do. So I desire a holy people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you tons of very specific, very meticulous, detailed commands on how to live in a holy kind of set-apart way. And if you obey, you will have my every blessing. But if you disobey, you will have curse, judgment, blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience. It's up to you. This is the old covenant. And then the Lord says, all right, ready, break. All right. And Israel embarks out into life under the old covenant for a few centuries. Let me ask you, how does it go? It is predictably terrible. Okay. So it doesn't matter where they go, doesn't matter where they uh, dwell, doesn't matter who they're led by. They could be in the wilderness, in the promised land. They could have judges. They could have kings. The struggle to obey and therefore the struggle to live under God's blessing is real. So much so that they finally receive what seems like the ultimate curse under the old covenant. That is, they are kicked out of the promised land. This is the exile, right? Well, eventually... By God's mercy, God's people are reinstated back into the holy place, the promised land. So slowly but surely, to the end of your, towards the end of your Bible, the exiles are returning from captivity into the promised land. So think about, think about the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city and the temple. God's people are being brought back into God's place. All right, so here's the thing. So all throughout this time, all along this timeline of history, while God's people have been tasked to live under the old covenant, there's a special group of characters. And that special group of characters are called the prophets. And the prophets, at various times, in various ways, they speak to the people of God. And the prophets are basically getting at two questions. The first question is they come to the people of God and they, they say, hey guys, hey, just checking in. Hey, how's it going under the old covenant? And the answer, inevitably, is, how's it going? How's it going? Terribly. That's how it's going. We can't obey. We're guilty. We're constantly guilty, which means when the Lord comes in the day of judgment, we've got no excuse, which means we have no blessing. We have no fellowship. We have no holiness, no happiness. It's always out of reach. 
And to this, the prophets then say, they get at a second question and they say, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if there were a new, a different way of relating to the Lord? One that's better than the old covenant. And it would. This is the message of the prophets. And the last of these prophets in your Bible is Malachi. And what I want us to do this morning is to think about Malachi as our on-the-scene reporter. All right? You've seen these people, right? Anybody still watch news? Okay. So the in-station anchors hear of a story, right? So they throw the feed to a person on the ground reporting live in order to give the audience an accurate picture of what's going on. Well, the scene here in Malachi is post-exilic Israel. Israel's been in exile, now they're back. So we're back in God's place, the promised land, among God's people, Israel, and the headline at the bottom of the screen is God's people given new chance in promised land. And the question being reported on is this, well, how's it going? How's it going? And Malachi, the prophet, is our reporter on the scene. So in this book, the news anchors in the studio, they speak to Malachi on the scene, and they say, Malachi, all right. So we see that these people have been given yet another chance to obey the old covenant. They must just be overjoyed. All right, Malachi, tell us, how's Israel's obedience going? So is, is the land just overflowing with blessings of milk and honey this time? And the feed cuts to Malachi, who's been there a little while now. And the scene is just, it's just dreary, it's, uh, it's raining, it's windy, it looks miserable. But strangely, Malachi has a smile on his face, and he looks at the camera, and with a big grin, he nods and says, it is terrible. It's all absolutely terrible. This old covenant, it's completely broken in every way. God is definitely going to judge these folks. And... And the anchors in the studio, they, they kind of look at one another, they're perplexed, and they say, all right, well, thanks, Malachi, I don't mean to like, get personal, but why exactly do you seem happy about this? And Malachi says, well, I've just come from speaking with the Lord himself, and what he says is that before he comes on that day of promised judgment, he's going to come a first time. And when he comes that first time, He's not going to come to judge his people. What he's going to do is he's going to come and do for them what the old covenant has never been able to do for them. That is, the Lord himself is going to come among his people, and he's going to cleanse them from the inside out. Look again down in chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is Malachi's vision of what's happening in the future. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Malachi says, 
He says these people's entire problem has been that they can't make themselves holy through obedience to God's commands. So guess what? Here's the message. The Lord is going to do it himself. He's not just going to give them obedience. He's going to give them new hearts. Chapter 4, verse 6, at the end of Uh, At the end of this book, at the end of the Old Testament as we have it, the last prophetic message that we have here in in the Old Testament, the Lord himself is coming not just to turn his people's actions, but to turn their what? To turn their hearts. Why am I smiling, Malachi says? Because even though the day of judgment is coming, even, even though this old covenant has been broken beyond repair, Even though these people are guilty beyond offense, the Lord says that he himself is coming with a new, with a different, with a better way of relating to him. In other words, the Lord is bringing a new covenant. Then Malachi, in a way, he kind of steps into the role of a spiritual meteorologist. He says, listen, I know it looks dreary and windy and rainy and sad and sorrowful, but soon, very soon, a son of righteousness is going to rise on this place. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go out leaping like calves from a stall. What a picture, huh? So the feed cuts back to the anchors in the studio. We're almost done with this metaphor, uh, but it does... They themselves are getting a little giddy, and they say, Malachi, how will we know when this is happening? How will we know when the Lord is bringing this to fruition? He says, great question. This is what the Lord told me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And as you know, we fast forward a few hundred years of prophetic silence until one day the people of Israel hear a voice crying out in the wilderness, calling out, exhorting people to prepare the way of the Lord. They hear a messenger, don't they? John the Baptist. And on John's heels, we have Jesus, God incarnate, the light of the world, the son of righteousness, who sets out on a ministry of setting things right before the day of judgment. What's he doing in his healings? He's showing you that broken things will be made right. He's initiating a new and better covenant, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his his very own blood, his blood that will be shed on the cross for the sins of his people. A new covenant is coming, initiated by Jesus, in which the very Spirit of God gives life to his people so that they themselves will worship the God in spirit and truth. And now in this new covenant, God's people have a new and definite plan for this day of judgment that's coming. Now God's people relate to God not on the old covenant basis of their own obedience and sacrifice. No. Now God's people relate to him on the new covenant basis of, of faith in Christ's obedience, Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. This, I think, is the message that Malachi is pointing us to. This is what I think is going on in Malachi. 
the book of Malachi is one final prophetic critique of the insufficiency of the old covenant to produce holy people. It can't do it. And it's the promise of God's coming messenger who will do the missing ministry of turning people's hearts to God. So what we see in the, whole, in the Old Testament as a whole, what we see here in Malachi in particular, is that the Old Covenant, the law, it's really good, but it's a really insufficient gift from God. It's like a prescription that's not up to the affliction, right? Have you ever had a headache that just no medication could touch? That's the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant promises great blessing for obedience. It's just that it can't produce obedience. And it cannot produce obedience because it cannot produce the one thing needful for obedience, which is what? Faith. If divine blessing, if divine blessing depends on human faithfulness, there is no hope for blessing. What God's people need is a different, a new, a better covenant that depends on God's faithfulness, not theirs. So before we kind of overview the the rest of the book of Malachi, we should ask, does your hope of receiving favor, does your hope of receiving blessing from God in your mind, does that hope ultimately rest on your faithfulness to God or on God's faithfulness to you? Does the hope of you being eternally blessed by God, does that rest on your day-to-day fidelity to God or on his day-to-day fidelity to you? I would propose that this Christian is the difference in living in the old and the new. This is the difference of living in joy and living in perpetual frustration and sadness. So this morning, I just want to invite you all, so Christian or not, I want to invite you out of the inevitable and constant frustration of the old way of relating to God based on your merit with him. And I want to invite you into the joy of a new way of living based on the merit of Jesus for you. I want to hold out to you this wonderful gift from God in Christ. It is a life lived, a life of faith lived by the grace of God. I think this is what Malachi is pointing us to. And if you get this, this one point, I think that's wonderful. Now, the rest of the book of Malachi, the bulk of Malachi, it's just laying out a detailed report from God through Malachi to his people on the specific ways in which the old covenant has failed to produce the holy people that God desires. This is Malachi's on-the-scene reporting, basically, for the rest of the time. And specifically, what Malachi reports is six disputes that the Lord has with his people. Six evidences of their disobedience, which display six important things that God desires, but the old covenant cannot produce. So as we take this brief overview, these six disputes here, I would just encourage you, let these things speak to your own life, your own way in which you relate to the Lord. And ask, does... As we go, ask, does your relating to God, does, it, does your relating to the Lord, does it look, does it have the flavor more of the old covenant or more of the new? So this is what Malachi is saying. Judgment is imminent. That's coming. 
God, by his grace, has promised a new way to relate to him in the new. And this is good news because the old way, the old covenant, is clearly broken. So in what way? What did the failure of the old covenant look like? We'll give you six things that Malachi points out. Number one, the old covenant failed to produce assurance. The old covenant failed to produce assurance. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. (laughs) What a delightful way to begin a prophetic book, huh? A wonderfully clear word of assurance of God's love for his people. The Lord says, without caveat to his sinful people, I have loved you. But notice, what's what's evidence number one of the failure of the law? Suspicion of that love. Verse 2 again, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's so interesting that the first noted failure of the old covenant that's mentioned here, it's not something on the outside, actually. What is it? It's a failure of heart. Failure of the affections. God makes a clear declaration of love for his people, but they can't believe it. They ask for proof of God's love, and he graciously shows them. He keeps going. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Love and hate here, they're not emotional terms. They're covenantal terms. How have I loved you? The Lord asks. He says, well, I chose you, didn't I? He points them back to their being chosen. He says, even though you were not the older brother, even though you weren't the correct brother, before you did anything, before you were either good or bad, between you and your brother Esau or Edom, I set my love on you. And then he he proves this love by continuing to be an enemy to the people who harass those whom he's chosen. This is what he's saying when he goes on in verse 3. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. All right, so you see here from the beginning, the basis of God's love the base of God's love for and the upholding of his people, it's not their right of birth. It's not their worthiness. It's what? It's his decision. It's his resolve to make them his own. People say, well, how, how can we know that you love us? So they enter back into the promised land and things aren't fixed. They say, I mean, there's still some pretty bad stuff going on in the world, even to us. And the Lord says, how do you know? Because you're mine. You're my people. And I would just give one quick takeaway before we move on. And that is, if you're looking for assurance of God's love for you, please do not begin by looking at your obedience to him. At all the things that you've done or you've tried to do or you failed to do to to make God your own. No. It's exactly the other way around in the Bible. If you're looking for assurance that God loves you, you begin with this. Not with your sacrifice for God, not with your efforts to make him your own, 
but with his sacrifice for you, his efforts to make you his own. You begin with what he's done to make you his. And as people of the new covenant, now we, we don't just look forward, we look back. What has he done to make us his own? He died to claim you. That's what he's done. He took on flesh so that he, he could look his people in the eye and hand them a cup and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he goes on to shed that very blood for the sins of the people once and for all. God loves you, Christian. He does. How do you know? Because you're his. The Lord, through Malachi, he points to a second thing. And that is the old covenant failed to produce worship. The old covenant failed to produce worship. This point is covered in the, in the longest section of the book. It's addressed specifically to the priests within Israel who were, in essence, the worship leaders uh, within Israel. So remember God's ultimate design is, is to have an entire group of people who are worshipers, a kingdom of priests. But under the old covenant, he had something very different. He had a kingdom with priests. Priests were men who had been set aside. They'd been designated as the go-betweens between the people on the outside and the Lord on the inside. And under the old covenant, what this worship, worship looked like was bringing to the Lord's altar pure and holy sacrifices for the sins of the people. But let's look and listen to what this was like in post-exilic Israel. Chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? So think about this. So within the masses of the Lord's disobedient people, there were to be at least a few select men set apart, fully devoted to God, who were exemplars of holiness and purity in every way, of righteousness and virtue, who approached God with reverence and fear and awe, presenting to the Lord in his temple presence pure and devoted animal offerings as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And to this end, as part of the old covenant, the Lord in his grace laid out meticulous specifications as to how these things were to be carried out so that the priests wouldn't have to doubt whether or not the way that they were approaching the Lord was being audacious or presumptive. The Lord tells them exactly what to bring, the purest of animals, nothing with any kind of defect, only those which are worthy of the purpose for which they're being used. This would be holy, this would be acceptable sacrifice under the old covenant to a holy God. And yet in light of all this, what were the priests of Israel doing? Verse 13, he says, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and you offer this as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
See what's happening. The, the priests are taking the very worst of their flocks and offering those to the Lord as sacrifices for sin. The Lord, the Lord, who, by the way, doesn't need this, would rather somebody shut the whole operation down. You see that in verse 9? Present that to your governor, he says. Will he accept, will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The one true God is seeking true worship from his holy people, and this is not happening under the law. And again, I would just, I would just point out what a great gift we have under the new covenant. So God's people no longer need an earthly priest to represent them, do they? Because Jesus Christ himself has become our one and better high priest. Now in the new covenant, we have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant, in Jesus Christ, think about this. In Christ, you not only have a priest, but you yourself are a priest to God, a worshiper in his very presence, a person chosen, filled with the Spirit, and set aside to enjoy the glory of God. The old covenant couldn't do that. A third evidence, number three, the old covenant failed to produce faithfulness. We see this in chapter two. The question is, can fidelity be drummed up by decree? This is one of the tests of the old, old covenant. Can the law produce, can it create faithfulness to God? Listen how Malachi puts it. Listen to the emphasis, chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The emphasis, the, the lesson here, it's, it's not hidden, right? The problem is that God's people are acting faithlessly. In particular, they're proving to be faithless, idolatrous, and that they've married the daughter of foreign gods. God's people, who were designed and desired to be a holy people, set apart within the world for the one true mighty God who confessed to be his, they're mixing with the people and practices of the pagan surrounding nations. And not only that, but then these same people come to worship with weeping and with tears, and they wonder why it is that God has no regard for their offerings. You see that in verse 13. He says, a second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. One, one surefire characteristic of those who are merely outwardly religious, something you can take to the bank, is their strong sense that they've been done wrong by the Lord. In the midst of all their faithfulness, the Lord has been unfaithful. They're here at the altar. They've shown up at church. 
They're giving their money. They're doing the Christian things that God said to do. But what's God doing? He doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't reward it. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Because she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The Lord is not fooled by performative religion. The Lord has no regard for those who live faithful, faithlessly in every other part of their lives and then come to religious service as if their hearts are right with him. The Lord is a witness. That's what he's saying. That's the point. He sees it all. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of, their, of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. It's very clear here the type of people the Lord is not seeking. A people who claim the name of the Lord, who come and offer him worship, who give their offerings, and then leave to live lives that are devoted to idols, to things that, that he hates, who live unfaithfully, dismissively in their most precious covenant commitments, like marriage. The one true God has no interest, no tolerance in sharing people's allegiance with the things that are not God. God's people do not marry idols. The problem wasn't being remedied under the old covenant. You know, the critique here that's mentioned here in chapter 2, it hones in on unfaithfulness in marriage under the old covenant. And again, just think of the crystal clear picture we now have of marriage in the new covenant. In Christ, we see that marriage is not just something to be thrown away for convenience sake. Marriage itself is to be a picture of redeeming love. Christ, the groom, has laid down his life for the bride. When Paul picks this up, speaking of Christ as our groom, he gives a new covenant vision for marriage. He says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's a, here's a new covenant question for husbands. Who is being asked to do the dying in your marriage? Look to Christ, husbands. This kind of love, this was not happening in the old covenant. It should be happening in the new. They were living faithlessly under the old covenant. It's no surprise then that they were having trouble trusting the Lord. This is the fourth dispute that the Lord brings. Number four, the old covenant failed to produce trust. It failed to produce trust. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Here the Lord tells his people that the way in which they speak to and of him, the things that they're saying are wearying him. He goes on, he says, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
How so? So what kind of words in the mouths of God's people are wearying to God? Words like this. He says, by saying, well, everyone who does evil is good in, in the sight of God, and he delights in them. Or, it might sound like this, by asking, where is the God of justice? So you, you get the picture, right? So God, God's people look at him, so they see, they see and they have seen a God of faithless, faithfulness and strength and justice, a God who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. But then they go to live and they turn and they look at the world and they, say, they see horrific injustices being done. And what do they say? Well, I guess the Lord loves evil now. I guess I'm the only one who cares about justice in the world anymore. And the prophet says this kind of speaking of God, it wearies him. The utter lack of trust in God's justice amid worldly injustice is completely baffling when you think about the story of the Bible. And yet it's, it's painfully relatable too, isn't it? How many of us are so easily tripped up in our faith by the existence of current injustices? So let me just encourage you. If the Lord has used the most egregious horrific injustice in history, the crucifixion of the very Son of God, if he's used that to bring about redemption, well, then he'll have his way with these other injustices too. The day of judgment is coming, church, and especially under the new covenant, this is really, really good news for God's people. There is not one horrific act of injustice done in this world which is not seen by God and will not be met by just retribution at the day when Christ returns for his people. So please, we cannot be like those under the old covenant. We have to know that the existence of injustice now, it's not an apologetic for the non-existence of eternal justice that is to come. He will have justice. We can trust him. Number five, the old covenant failed to produce generosity. It hasn't produced assurance, it hasn't produced faithfulness, it hasn't produced trust, and it doesn't produce generosity. So we, as we've already seen, in the Old Covenant, the Lord has set apart certain men as priests to him in order to, in order to free those men up to dedicate all their time to temple service. The Lord, in his wisdom, in the Old Covenant, had also set up a way for the priests to be provided for by the people. So how was that? Well, the, the people would give to the priests, to the temple, tithes and other offerings. So if you had a home and you had a garden where you grew food, you would bring a tithe. You would bring a tenth of that, of that produce, to the priests to provide for them. Under the old covenant, the people relied on the faithfulness of the priests, and the priests relied on the generosity of the people. Now, as if I had to ask, how is this going under the Old Covenant? How is the law doing in flooding the hearts of God's people with generosity towards their priests? Now, well, look, chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 
in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Just as the priests were bringing less than their best offerings to the Lord, so in direct disobedience to the covenant, the people themselves were bringing less than their commanded tithe as offering to the priests. And in this, they were robbing God. Not that the Lord needed their tithe. That's never the point. It's all his. What they had was already his. He had commanded, though, certain things were to be done with it. And further, they're robbing God, in a sense, of the opportunity for him to display his provision through further, uh, further lavish provision as a response to their giving. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you the blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God hadn't demanded tithes and offerings because he was stingy and he wanted his cut. It's exactly the opposite. He demanded the tithe so that the people would voluntarily part with some of their possessions, trust him wholeheartedly in his kind providence, and then be a witness to, be recipients of his further lavish provision. This was the aim of the old covenant tithing laws. But again, it didn't work. People love their stuff, and they'll keep loving it without a better, without a higher affection. The law was not producing the generosity which God desired in his people. And it should be noted that this is why the law doesn't work now either. You know, church leaders could try, some do, to demand a tithe from every church member. But it's not just that this wouldn't be biblical as we're not under this old covenant. It's also very simply that it doesn't work. And that's because God's goal, God's goal is not to extract from each church member a tenth of their possessions. His desire is so much higher than that in the new covenant. His desire is a change of heart, a change of affection. Our joyful, benevolent God is after joyful, voluntarily generous, benevolent people and hearts. So listen, you need to know when it comes to your possessions, tithing, giving a tenth, is no longer our standard under the old covenant. We're not under that particular law anymore. You know what our standard of generosity is now? It's Christ. We covered this in 2 Corinthians 8 just a few weeks ago when Paul himself wants to compel people to generosity, to giving in order to meet the legitimate needs of other churches. What does he say? He says, you know, you know the law of tithing that I hold over your heads, Corinthians. Is that what he says? Not at all. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus' generosity, to conceive of it in percentages is to miss the entire point, isn't it? His generosity is total. 
It's all-encompassing. What did Jesus give? His life. His life. And that, Christian, is your standard under the, under the new covenant. Everything you have is his. It's all his. So listen, when you do the good work of asking how it is that you might join in the joy of generosity in this church's gospel ministry, how it is you might not rob God of the wonderful occasion to display his bottomless provision, be compelled, be compelled, not by the law. Be compelled by Christ. It's all his. Everything you have is his. And there's more where that came from. Open your hands and watch God open his. The law does not have that kind of power, but the gospel does. The gospel does. The new covenant does. Okay, sixth and finally, the old covenant failed to produce hope. The old covenant failed to produce hope. The Lord's final dispute with his people once again deals with the way that they speak to him, of him. In short, in this way, they speak in a way which shows that they have lost all hope in him. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our profit of our keeping his charge of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You can see under the old covenant, the holy people of God had become a shell of what they were intended to be. You see here, their relationship with Yahweh was, it was, it was transactional now, at best. So they did certain things. He was supposed to respond in kind, and inevitably they can't do it right. So what's the result? They're just hopeless. It's, it's vain to serve God. What's the point? I wonder, I wonder if you've ever been there yourself. Listen, if you're lacking hope, if you're lacking hope in the Christian life, I wonder if you pause and think about it. I wonder if you might say that your relationship with the Lord has become rather transactional. That is, you've, you've really sought to do things his way, and your expectation is that he's supposed to respond in kind. You're supposed to feel happy, all these things. But your experience is that that hasn't happened. Your conclusion, well, what's the point? Let me, let me just encourage you with one final thing that I think many of us need to hear. Listen, in the new covenant, you have been freed from a transactional relationship with the Lord. And that's because Jesus Christ has taken on the one transaction that mattered on your behalf. Jesus has done the work of satisfying the penalty for your sin. On the cross, concerning that transaction, he said certain words. You know what they are? He said, it is what? It's finished. Christian, when you're, when you're tempted to slip back into, 
into a hopeless, lifeless, guilt-ridden, transactional relationship with your Father, I think you can do this. I think you can remember and speak to your heart these new covenant words that can't be found anywhere outside of Christ. You think and you stop and you pray and you say to yourself and you say to your guilt-ridden soul, you say this, it is finished. That way of living, that way of dealing with your sin, that way of dealing with your shame, that way of dealing with your guilt, it is finished. Christ has put himself in your place. When you place your faith in that sacrifice on your behalf, it is finished. No more guilt for you. Get out from under it and live under the new covenant that he's given to you. If divine blessing depends on human faithfulness, there is no hope. If your hope is in you, if your hope is in you, you have no hope. What God's people need is a different, what God's people need is a better, a new covenant that depends on God's faithfulness, not ours. And praise God, this is exactly what he's done for us in Christ. What is your plan? What's your plan for relating to the Lord? What's your plan for relating to him today when you feel guilt? What's your plan for relating to him on the last day when you feel guilt? Let me encourage you. There is a new covenant way of living that's available to you in Christ. It is filled to the brim with nothing but grace. It's a fountain that never runs dry, the new covenant. And you, pick, you can begin to live in that grace right here and right now at the table of the Lord. Here, Jesus himself says that this, this receiving, this communing, this delighting, this is a new covenant sealed with his blood. And we do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the new covenant in Christ's blood. We pray that you would, by your grace, that you, Spirit, would do a good work in us of freeing us from the ways in which we slip back into an old covenant way of relating to you. We pray that you do the wonderful work of helping us to delight in the grace that has been secured for us in Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.